0: I think that we have to pay it forward. Um, our young people deserve to be mentored and helped. And uh, I think it's our it's our duty. We've been helped and I think now it's our turn to to try and guide others.
1: Hello and welcome to the third episode of the UN Job Finder Career Podcast from Intelmo. This show is for all of you who are interested in a career within the international development sector. In this podcast I'm talking to remarkable people who've had or who are having a career within this field and to hear their stories and hear their advice. Julia Watt, who we're going to hear today, was at the time of the interview Chief of Human Resources at ITU, but has very recently moved to UNHCR, where she's now the head of service appointments, promotions and career management. Congratulations Julia to your new position. So, without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Welcome to the UN Job Finder Career Podcast. And today I'm honored to introduce our guest, Julia Watt. Julia, welcome to the UN Job Finder Career Podcast.
0: Thank you, Magnus.
1: Great. <laughs> Julia and I, we got to know each other um, over 10 years ago, I think it was, when we both were working at UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Geneva. And Julia has been working for many different UN organizations for a long time. He, um, if I'm not <coughs> mistaken, you started with UNDP as a JPO, a junior professional officer. You moved on to UNOPS. And then you were with UNHCR for many years, you're working both in West Africa, um, in Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire, and then in, also in East Africa, I think, in, in, in uh, uh, Ethiopia.
0: That's right.
1: And now you're the chief of human resources at the International Te- Telecommunications Union, ITU, one of the specialized agencies of the United Nations.
0: That's correct also.
1: Great. So, so that was a very short description of your career. But the, um, please introduce yourself.
0: Well, actually, it was a it was a good description, indeed. Uh, I've been with the UN system for twenty five years. It will be twenty five years this coming August. All right. And um, it's been quite an incredible journey. Um, and before before the UN, I guess, uh, if anybody's interested. I was in Canada, and um, I uh, studied in Toronto. My family lives in Calgary, so Western Canada, and um, nothing particularly extraordinary there. Quite a quite a normal track, I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What did you study?
0: I studied uh, political science and environment studies and French.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: And in, in the political science field, I focused on African studies and development.
1: Ah, right. So there we see that the, um, maybe that's when, when the interest for this uh, um, this type of career started.
0: Well, yeah, I would say it, it, did, it definitely peaked during the course of, of my studies. I didn't set out to study development or particularly go overseas or have any particular interest in the UN as such. Um it I think evolved just uh, naturally, I could say um I had the opportunity through networks and various contacts to go on a on a research seminar to Africa in nineteen eighty six and um it was love at first sight basically
2: mm.
0: and uh then um I would say by accident perhaps and a convergence of positive and favorable circumstances, I was able to start working for the UN.
1: Right. Well, tell us more about that. What was that? Was that how you got into the JPO program? Uh,
0: It was actually very easy at the time, at least for me. Uh, I don't know if everyone went through the same uh, lucky process, but I had a part-time job uh, during my master's studies with, uh, an NGO in Toronto called the, uh, foundation for international training. And the director of that NGO, um, went to New York to pitch the program to the UN, to UNDP specifically, oh, okay. because he was doing some trainings at the time on sustainable development, on human resources. Uh, and and various other issues. And he had a contact in the UN, I believe in the training department. So I went with him and we did the mission and we pitched our program. And I think it was a three day trip to New York altogether. And as I was walking the halls of UNDP, I happened on an office where on the door there was a brochure about the JPO program. So I literally knocked on the door and found the person in the office, who was the responsible officer for the JPO program, who interviewed me right there and then, and the rest was history, basically.
1: Okay. (laughs) It was
0: extremely, I was still in the midst of my master's program. It was February, if I recall. And I didn't start until August, so um, UNDP really made all the contacts with the Canadian government, presented my CV for the sponsorship, which happened without any further uh, intervention or contact from me. So it was quite quite a smooth process, I would say. I'm not sure that it actually happens that way nowadays.
1: No, no.
0: JPO programs are a little bit more um, competitive than they were in 1990.
1: Right. Yeah. Now, I, I. guess now JPO programs. I'm also a uh, former JPO program for or, or JPO from uh, from Sweden. Um, and the um, when I was um, accepted, it was quite a competitive uh, process. But. Um, Maybe, could you tell us, because I think that some of those who are listening don't really know what a JPO is. Could you say a few words about that?
0: I'm not sure what a JPO is now anymore. Um, I think a JPO now is probably very different to what a JPO was in 1990. But um, I was recruited as a, a program officer, to UNDP posted in Dakar, Senegal, and I arrived, I was briefed by the assistant representative for programs who was also new, just arrived. I was given a package of projects to monitor. That was sort of the um, traditional or uh, maybe not traditional, but this, this was the package that JPOs passed on one to each other in that particular UNDP office, um, so I had um, four or five projects, and um, and that was it. I was given the contacts. I was put on the list of correspondence. There was no email at the time. It was all
2: right.
0: um, it was all done through the uh, old archaic methods. And I started going to meetings and workshops, and you know, plugged myself into the network like that. And um, spoke with my predecessors, spoke with people in New York, all the people that I could get my hands on, really, to guide me as to what it was that was expected of me. And it was really what a program officer today would do.
1: Mm. Yeah. No, I, I think you, you you mentioning a couple of few things that I think are really important into sort of getting into any any job in in any international organization is that you need to make sure that you understand how things work. No, nothing will be served to you. Absolutely, you really need to find those networks that can support you, that can guide you, but also uh, make sure that you take take actions yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, but just to maybe a short note on that. I think the JPO program, if you um, is, you are not. You are employed by a UN organization, but you're financed by um, uh, normally a, a country donor. That's know? right. So you were normally a...
0: by your own government, and exactly I, there yeah. are some governments that also finance JPOs from other countries. Um, I think the Dutch finance as well as the Spanish finance some jpos from developing countries specifically
1: yeah yeah that's right great um thank you for that julia um, i'm sure you have tons of stories that we could uh, talk about for hours but it would be nice to hear if you could give us um an example or an experience that you've had um, that you are really proud of or that was uh, rewarding for you in, in your career
0: There were so many, uh, as as you say, you know, it's very hard to pinpoint one, and I really thought about this um, a little bit in advance to try and give you something interesting and uh, relevant. Um, I would say that one of, and I won't call it the proudest moment, but it's definitely one of the ones that marked me quite significantly, was uh, when I was in Ethiopia with UNHCR, And, um, I was, uh, posted as education officer, but I also had responsibilities in the community services field. Mm. And one day a young Somali woman showed up in my office and, um, she said that she would like to talk to me. So I asked her to sit down. Uh, she introduced herself and said that she was coming from Holland uh, where she had been a refugee for I think two or three years if I'm not mistaken or or a little longer even. And um, where um and, and she was coming back to Ethiopia because she was looking for her children. Oh. And,
2: um
0: she had two children with whom she fled Somalia, Mogadishu specifically. Mm-hmm. And on her way to wherever she was going at the time, I I can't recall if it was Addis that she ended up in or or some other city in Ethiopia prior to traveling to Holland, she was obliged to leave her children with some distant relative in some village um, and had lost trace of them, basically. And they were quite young. They were uh, under the age of five at the time. Um, There was a boy and a girl. And um, so I thought, wow, you know, that must be quite incredible. And and her story, I'll spare you all the the details, but her story was quite moving. The flight, the the issues of... uh, how they left Mogadishu, et cetera. And, and she was also strikingly beautiful. Mm. Um, so for me, it was, it was, and I had two young children under the age of five at the time. And I thought, oh my God, it's inconceivable
2: yeah. how,
0: how much anguish and suffering people go through in in this world. And this is just one example and probably not the worst example uh, mm. of what people see, um, but um, I thought, okay, let's let's see what we can do. So again, plugging into the various networks in in Ethiopia, uh, and by her various descriptions of the places where where she had been, we managed over the space of about I would say five months mm. to actually trace the village of where this distant relative was and long and short of it was miraculously she was reunited with her children oh and we were able to then um, manage for these children who were close to being teenagers at the time already uh, to accompany her back to holland oh and um, I still get a knot in my throat when I think about this story.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, I can. Uh,
0: it was it was very rewarding. Um, I can't say proud moment because I was I was sad for her. I was sad for the state of the world where such things are are allowed to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, but it was great that it had a happy ending because many stories like that don't have happy endings.
1: No, you're right. Well, yeah, um, I can hear that you are still moved by that story, and I, I can fully understand that, especially since I also have children. I think it's always easy to relate to um, stories or, or lives like that when you you also have your own kids. Um, I guess that yeah, um, for you, especially, I mean, it, it it must be energizing also to be able to think back about all those. Um, things that have happened in your career that actually make it worth working in this in this field
0: exactly exactly if i don't think that if if i didn't have those um memories and stories and achievements i don't think i'd still be as motivated and as happy to get up in the morning and come to work
1: yeah how do you sort of remain professional? Because I guess you can also just sort of drown in all these um, people that you meet that have faced all this horrible... Um, yes,
0: I, I. in fact, I, I thought about this quite uh, a number of times because I don't know if it's a, a good quality or a bad quality, but I have managed to really um, stay sufficiently detached to preserve my sanity. Mm. And uh, while I I do care and I do feel for the people and I'm very committed to what I do when I'm in the moment, I am able to step back and look at my life and and feel that um, I'm not necessarily responsible for all the ills on earth and I can't necessarily change all of that. I can do my part and change the little bit that I can change. Mm. And, and that keeps me focused.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's a, a great strategy and always important to keep in mind. Um, great. Thank you, Julia. You, you sort of going from that, from you, um, something that you've, you, um, has been rewarding for you, could you share something that has been maybe uh, a struggle or, or a challenge for you that sort of kept you awake at night? I'm sure mm. there's plenty of st- those stories as well.
0: There's plenty of those stories as well, indeed. Um, let, me, let me narrow it down to one uh, general one. I would say that, and this is faced by not just the UN, not just NGOs, but I think the private sector as well faces this in, in large organizations, but the, um, the power of bureaucracy Uh, And by power, I mean the sort of um, untangible difficulties that that are raised by administrative processes that we, in fact, have created and are responsible for, but yet have gotten away from us somehow and have taken on a life of their own. And it's not entirely clear in every situation what or who serves what or who does the administrative process serve the organization and enables us to fulfill our mandates or do we serve the administrative process? Right. And that at times has been extremely challenging. Um, The balance of finding the, the point, the sweet spot of how to manage the needs of the organization, the administration, the staff, and the clients uh, Mm. is an extremely challenging everyday task. And Mm. that is something that I don't think people are necessarily as well prepared for as they should be.
1: No, you're right. And I think that lots of people who have been working in, in... I mean, huge organization like you say. It doesn't have to be the UN or NGOs or I think many many large organizations are facing these these problems or challenges. But um, as you say, I think it's also. I mean, we're talking about organizations that have yeah, thousands of staff in in hundreds of countries where um, with multi national staff. So it's it's. Um, in some ways, of course, some, some administrations are, I mean, that's also needed. Yeah, but it, it, it's, again, as you say, finding finding the right balance. Yes. Yeah. So um, that maybe leads us into my next, next questions about whether there was something um, that you didn't expect. Yeah. I mean, before joining the UN, um Um, that you were sort of surprised when you started working for the UN? Um,
0: Yes, I was. I was surprised at um, just how ordinary and normal it was as compared to the rest of organizations in the world. I I really thought I had these phenomenal, naive uh, ideas, I suppose, of the UN being something like the beacon of this and that, human rights, uh, um, development, uh, etc. All of the things that all of the different agencies stand for, as well as the Secretariat, peacekeeping, etc. But in the end, I think we as UN staff are just as human and just as fallible as anyone else. Mm. And we do our best for the most part. Uh, I think people are extremely dedicated. And again, I'm talking about the majority. There's always that one little minority percentage that casts uh, a negative shadow on on everything else. But Mm. as as a group, I think we are extremely dedicated. But yes, that that, um, bureaucratic inertia and sometimes the personal interests uh, overtaking the real purpose of mm. why we're all where we are um did uh, surprise me a little bit and and i think that i would be lying if i said that i didn't come out of it somewhat jaded
1: mm. yeah no I, I see your point um great i'm curious to hear i mean you have been working um both in Africa, or in, in smaller offices, but also in, in the um, headquarters in, in Geneva and, and now also for ITU. Um, what would you say are the main differences in, in working in a, in a smaller country office and, and in headquarters?
0: Well, of course, the obvious one is that you're very close to the point of delivery.
1: Mm.
0: You're, you're able to see the impact of what you're doing much quicker and in real time and with all the colors and and everything that goes around, goes along with being close to, to the clients. Mm.
2: Um,
0: so that definitely, um, definitely is one big difference. Um, the other ones, I would say, are from the lifestyle and the cultures that you are implanting yourself in, which of course, are different to what you are used to, where you're coming from. Um, that is true to some extent to headquarters duty stations as well because we're not from Switzerland or we're not from New York necessarily or Vienna or Nairobi or mm. wherever headquarters duty stations are. Um, so we are, we're different. We're guests. Mm. And it's enriching to some extent, to a large extent. It's very enriching. I found my field assignments particularly particularly satisfying. Um, I enjoyed the overall slower pace of life in the field, the contact with people, mm. the um, relationships that you build with colleagues and within the various networks that you're uh, evolving in much closer, I think, than um, just being in a nine-to-five environment in a headquarters duty station, although not all headquarters duty stations are nine-to-five environments and not all organizations are like that. I'm generalizing a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, but I see what you mean. I think it's it's a great point. But um, would you say that for you, um, because I think that the, um, the, um, I mean, to simplify, you can say that many people also in the UN, um, especially in um, headquarters, to the stations like Geneva, New York, um, some of the people working there have maybe not even the um, ha- or haven't been working for years or been stationed in the in the field. Um, but but you have. Would you say that the that experience for you have um, made you um, better in your work?
0: For me, absolutely. I can't speak for everyone, but for me, I think it completely enhanced and improved my uh, appreciation and my uh, ability to to scope things and to give a better opinion, a better view, a better a better option to the various problems that i'm responsible for solving
1: mm. yeah great so you were talking about the, how you um i mean in, in many occasions but when you join us jpo but also we um, in that we um, um story you told about when you met that woman in, in ethiopia when um, would you say that you have um personal habit or trait that has been critical for your success in in this career?
0: Uh, Well, I think we already touched on one, and that sort of preserving your personal space and um, understanding where your responsibility ends and where someone else's responsibility begins and respecting that uh, in order to uh, prevent burnout, truly. Mm. I think that that has been a key strategy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, The other other traits, um, I think that um, flexibility, I mean, these words are glib, but they're very important. Adaptability, um, enjoyment of the world, curiosity, um, uh, yeah, love of what you do. I think all of these things are extremely important and mm. staying in touch with what you feel is important in your life is is critical.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think if I remember you correctly, I, I, I think you also have, a, um, talking about those challenges about working in um, administrations, so I think you also have the... Um, um, the will to not always accept rules that are um, unnecessary or, or question them to make the organization more efficient.
0: Oh, you must. Absolutely. You must do that. And that goes back to what serves what. Do the rules serve us or do we serve the rules? Yeah, I think if the rules are serving us and if at one point in time a rule doesn't serve the needs of the organization and its staff anymore, then there's nothing that prevents us from changing it. It may take time, it may take a lot of effort, it may take a lot of negotiation because we're not alone, we're in a system, mm. um, so we must consult, etc. But I think that there's really nothing that prevents uh, rules from adapting, just like we are expected to be adaptable and flexible. And versatile and agile, so Mm. should our rules.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. One of the most important lessons that you would like to share with our listeners who who wants to pursue an international sort of career in, in, in this field.
0: Perseverance. I think that should be really the key. I think in today's world, it's probably much, much harder and young people will get many rejection letters when they apply for posts or rejection emails, or no answer at all. Mm. Um, I think that perseverance and um, a tough skin right from the start are extremely important.
1: Mm. Um, yeah,
0: they They will have to take some hard knocks, but if they really are committed and if that's what they really want to do there's always a way i think mm. that there's so much opportunity out there i think you can see through the the site that you're that you're started there's so much going on there's so many ways to help to get in to start something um to participate uh, that i think anyone who is committed and really wants to do it um Can Hmm. so I think perseverance is extremely important, um, and being able to take a little bit of rejection or a lot of rejection, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: Yeah. no, I I fully agree, and I think that's great advice. I think that's really needed. Um, But what would you say are the most, or if any, uh, sort of skills that are maybe more important for having an international career?
0: um good writing ability Mm -hmm. i i always say that um touch typing (laughs) was probably the best course that i've ever taken that has helped me the most in um in my career because it enabled me to be independent in typing my reports and typing everything that i that i needed to present in a in a really quick way um and not to, not to rely on anyone to take dictation or to do my memos or letters or reports or mission reports, proposals. Um, I think that has been extremely handy. So I encourage everyone to know how to touch type um, yeah. quick, quickly and accurately. And with the advent of computers, I think it's even, even better now. Mm. Uh, um, certainly languages helps. Uh, the more the merrier. Uh, certainly the the UN languages obviously for the UN, but I think also some local languages would always be handy, something that sets you apart from the masses. Mm. Um, because if you look at university graduates now, they're extremely well-skilled in the technical subjects that they were studying. Mm. Um, they're overachievers in many ways. Um, many of us in, in in the UN nowadays, when we get together and talk about uh, recruitment and talent management and outreach, we we joke, but it's not really a joke. It's kind of true that many of us, if we were applying today, probably would not be selected.
2: <laughs>
0: because, you know, today we're not that special. Maybe Mm. 25 years ago, there was something in us that set us apart from from the crowd. But today, not so much. And I think that that's that's what people should look for, is something that sets the person apart, something that makes them different, special, unusual. Mm. That's what I look for.
1: That's what you look for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, I would like to talk to also a bit about ITU. Um, Okay. I think um, ITU is, is um, well known for those who are sort of really into telecommunications and or broadly IT, but uh, maybe not as known to, to others. Um, um, could you tell us a bit about, more about what ITU um, are working with? Oh,
0: well, there's a lot of different areas. Um, the three main pillars, I would say, are Radio uh, communications, including frequency assignment, <clears throat> you can't um, you can't get a frequency without passing through uh, somehow something related to the ITU, mm. uh, and that's important, as you can imagine, to all field operations as well um, of the UN of the world at large. Right. There's the normal the standardization bureau which talks which um, explores the the standards telecommunication standards mm. that um, that everyone then uses there's many study groups that do extremely interesting things um, on on these standards in telecommunication in um, in mo- phones mobile technology, cybersecurity, um, all of these things that, that we hear about in the news, really, we're there. Mm. We're not necessarily the, the ones on the front line, but we're, we're definitely, definitely there. And communication, of course, in today's world, communication is something that is key to everything. Right. Right. Yeah. And then the third pillar is the uh, telecommunication development sector, which perhaps would be the easiest one for your readers and listeners to relate to, um, which is the um, development sector, meaning development projects in countries worldwide, not just developing countries, everywhere that... Enhance the country's telecommunication capacity, Hmm. Um, whether it be in the the human capacity or the technical capacity. So these are projects um, like a health project, like a water project. This would be a telecommunication project. All right. Um, So there's that aspect as well. And then there's the general secretariat, which provides common services, conferences, HR, finance administration etc like in, in many agencies
1: hmm. Hmm. yeah i think it's it's a, you i mean one way of maybe um, understand easily what it are doing is is the um, as you 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 put it yourself connecting the world
0: connecting the world exactly
1: yeah reminds me of the old the nokia um commercial with the connecting people but you're actually connecting the world
0: countries organizations people
1: yeah. exactly yes yeah so um, you talked about what you were looking for if, if when you are recruiting um, um, when you are now recruiting to to itu are there any specific sort of areas that you're recruiting for if you if you look at sort of skill sets or areas or um...
0: well there's always the technical side of things like the radio engineers the um, IT specialists, the cybersecurity specialists, etc. Um, the the it's quite varied. We don't have um, generalist posts as much as other agencies would, except perhaps in administration and finance.
2: Mm. Um,
0: so each position is quite unique. It's not a huge agency. We have about seven hundred and fifty staff. Um, so each position is quite specific. Mm. I would say that there's not one particular skill set that I can narrow down, but uh, definitely engineers, IT specialists, um, communication specialists, uh, media specialists, mm. all of that.
1: Right. And that is also an area which is, yes, many others, but quite competitive in, in finding the, the top talents.
0: It's quite competitive, but uh, so far we've not had any trouble whatsoever obtaining extremely interesting applicants for our positions. Um, There was one position that I remember a few years ago, it was a P2 post, I think in our legal department, that um, harvested over 1,400 applicants.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's great. Yeah. And, and why would you say that? Why should people come and work for ITU?
0: Well, if they're interested in connecting the world, this is the place to be.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> this is
1: it. Yeah, that's it. Great. So, um, thank you so much. Before we end, Julia, do you have any um, final tips that you would like to share with our listeners? Any advice or, or do's and don'ts for those who wants to pursue a, an international career,
0: um, be open to opportunity. Opportunity is not always straight ahead of you. It could be to the left. It could be to the right. Could be behind you. So look left, look right, and be ready to seize whenever that comes up. Mm. Um, don't. Uh, I don't know. It's very hard to, to say don't do this or don't do that. It's very, um, you know, it's, there are certain things that are fairly obvious. Mm. Um, I think I'd rather focus on the do's. Do be open to opportunity.
2: I think yeah. that, is, yeah. that
0: is key. Mm. I would not have thought that I would find myself at ITU um, if you talked to me 10 years ago. Uh, But the opportunity came up, knocked on my door, and it's been a great experience for the last Mm. years.
1: Right. Great. And be mobile, I guess, also. Be prepared to move around.
0: Interagency mobility, field headquarters mobility. I think it's difficult to organize sometimes with families and spouses and dual careers. That's Mm. a whole other topic, I think, that... uh, you should probably do a separate podcast on. Great idea. But um, all of that is something that is manageable if you keep your eye on what you really want to do.
1: Mm. Excellent. One final question. Do you have any advice on who we should interview on this podcast who've also had a remarkable career like you?
0: Um, Really off the top of my head... No, but I think that if you look through your network, which I'm sure you've maintained because you know that that's really important, you will find uh, many, many people who are far more remarkable than I am. I don't consider myself in that super remarkable camp, but um, lots of UNHCR colleagues and other UN colleagues have done remarkable things and can tell you many interesting stories um, about their careers. If you're focusing on HR managers, then you probably have the list of just about all of the HR managers in the UN system today. And um, I think they're interesting people.
1: Indeed, yes, we will have a series of of HR people, but we're also looking forward to interviewing those who are have been working more on, on sort of a, the operational side. Also, I think which will be very interesting.
0: Well, there you have a great pool in UNHCR, which I'm sure you've kept in touch with. Uh,
1: yes, yeah.
0: Very operational, very hands on.
1: Mm. Great. Thank you so much, Julia. It's been really great to talk to you and, and thank you for sharing so much of your um, experience and, and your advice to our listeners. I think uh, we are well, uh, um, m- much more equipped now to uh, jump into this career.
0: Thank you very much for thinking of me, Magnus. And it, it really is a pleasure. I think that we have to pay it forward. Um, our young people deserve to be mentored and helped and uh i think it's our it's our duty we've been helped and i think now it's our turn to to try and guide others
1: excellent thanks julia i hope you enjoyed that episode with julia Watt. again thank you to julia for being on the show and for those of you who missed the beginning julia is no longer with itu she's back with unhcr Thank you to all of you who's been sending us feedback. Please continue sending that via Twitter at UNJobFinder, Facebook.com forward slash UNJobFinder and UNJobFinder.org forward slash contact. At UNJobFinder.org, you will also find show notes and the transcript of the whole episode. Thank you for this time. We really appreciate that you're listening to us. And until next time, have a great week.